Hey everybody, I'm Adam Levenberg. Welcome to the Official Screenwriting Podcast number 10. Heads up that officialscreenwriting.com is my website. It's where you can go to hire me to do things like a one script consultation where I read through your script, I take notes on the PDF, I write up a separate notes document for you where I really synthesize all the information, all the things that you need to know, how you're gonna go about doing this rewrite, and then I email that stuff to you and we talk on the phone for an unlimited period of time. I don't believe in saying, well, it's only for 90 minutes or it's only for two hours or three hours. I don't care if it takes five hours. The better your script is, the more time we're gonna talk about it. As I've said before, the script that I worked on uh, with the writer who made it onto the blacklist that year, we spent over four hours or five hours talking about it and we only actually dealt with the first half of the script. So, you know, that's something that I definitely recommend you look into. If you have any questions, I'm happy to talk to you about it. And you can also hire me, you know, for a $99 hour-long conversation, which usually is about either you've written a short film that you want me to take a look at, or you want me to take a look at the first couple pages of your script, or you want me to look through all your log lines and all your mini summaries of the ideas that you're thinking of working on so that I can ask you the important questions that you need to take into account before you start writing. I'm going to do for you what an agent or manager would do for you if you were represented, which is ask you the tough questions, get in your face a little bit, ask who, who would be right for that role, or what if we changed it to this, or did that, or the other thing, so that you have that information before you spend months or years of your life on a screenplay. Also, you can buy my book at thestarterscreenplay.com with free shipping, and I will personally autograph it for you. If you're listening to the podcast, you should definitely, definitely read the book. I think you'll get a lot more out of listening to the podcast and you know so forth. Also, on February 23rd at the Director's Playhouse, and you can sign up for this stuff at directorsplayhouse.com. It's in West Los Angeles, easy to get to on a Saturday. Wherever you are, it's right near where the uh, 405 and the 10 meet. I am doing a horror seminar from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. It is a master class. I'm gonna be talking about a lot of really cool stuff, looking at the genre, looking at how the genre has evolved over the years, but most specifically, looking at which are the horror movies that are getting made and how are those different in 2013 than maybe they were even five years ago. And then from 1 p, I'm sorry, from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m., I'm gonna be doing a master's class in comedy writing for 2013, where we're gonna talk about the building blocks of all comedy scenes and situations, the types of heroes that are found in comedies in 2013, uh, the categories of successful studio and actor-friendly concepts, the types of concepts that seem to be getting made these days, how broad comedies and romantic comedies function, and how com great comedy reads on the page. We'll be looking at some examples on the page itself. So we'll be doing clips, we'll be looking at examples, we'll be talking, your feedback is always important. When I do these classes, it's a conversation. It's not me reading off of a PowerPoint. No offense to those who do that, but you know, to me, it's a far more dynamic exercise to have you included in the process. And then on March 2nd, my class is starting up again at the Director's Playhouse. It is $299 for a six-week course, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. I limit the class to only uh, between five and 10 people, and it's really a great opportunity to work one-on-one -on -one with me. So, moving into today's show, which I think it's going to be a little bit short today, but I can't say that because sometimes I start rambling. I guess you know that by now. The, the biggest thing that I have found, and I think I may have talked about this in a previous episode. I may have. I definitely recorded about 10 or 15 minutes about talking about this subject, and I don't know whether or not it got cut out or not. So I'm going to talk about it again because I think it's so key, which is that 
you need to be up on which movies are coming out, what's coming out onto DVD, what TV shows are on the air, which ones are being renewed. I think that Deadline.com is a good place to go. I think you can read The Hollywood Reporter and Variety, but really the best place to find out about the output of Hollywood, because remember that Deadline and Variety and Hollywood Reporter, they are big on the announcements of what projects are taking formation, what has just been sold. And I think that stuff is important. I mean, it's really important if you're inside the industry. But if you're outside the industry, it's also important to know what's coming out. And to me, it's not important that you see every movie. It doesn't say anything to me just because you go to the movies three times a week, which is what I used to do up until probably a couple of years ago, or maybe, maybe the last seven, eight years, I haven't been seeing as many movies because I get it. I understand how movies work. I've seen enough of them. I've seen over three to 4,000 movies in my life, and I can be a lot more particular with what I go to see. But the biggest way that I have stayed on top of entertainment and the way that I've created an encyclopedic knowledge of cinema and television is being a regular subscriber to Entertainment Weekly, getting it delivered every week and making sure that you read the right parts of the magazine, which are the movie section, the TV section, and the book section. And by doing those things, and also there's the DVD section, which is sort of a recap on uh, on the movie section. But again, a lot of movies are not theatrically, theatrically released these days. So that DVD section becomes less of the repeating of information as opposed to the beginning of new information about what movies are out there. Just so that you know what the what the title is, what the idea of it is, and who is in it. And I think that that's something that you can't beat because it comes to your mailbox every week and you'll never be ignorant again. You'll never say, hey, what's that movie? Or what's that show? You won't be able to get by. You'll know what shows are big. You'll know what shows you need to check out. You know, I've always said you don't need to watch the show New Girl every week. But at this point, it's basically, you know, because I had a student of mine who said this week, well, what's New Girl? And I kind of smacked my head and said, what's wrong with you? I mean, kidding, but also not kidding. Because the reality is, if you want to be working in this industry, you should know exactly what New Girl is. And you should have at least seen the show. It's almost like saying back in the day, you know, three or four years in, hey, what's Friends? I mean, it's, it's something that you should know about. And whether or not it's for you or not is a question of taste. And that's something that's up to you. But you have to take a look at an episode to see, is this for me? And of course, some of us don't have time to watch every show out there. But you should get a general survey of what's out there. And the TV section is also great because it gives you little capsule reviews of everything that's coming up and all the special programming that is done, all the TV movies that are being done, all of the new series that are coming out, they'll write a little bit about it. Even if it's only three or four sentences, that's enough for you to know, oh, okay, Animal Planet is now doing live or doing scripted TV shows. That's an interesting thing. Do I have anything that might be right for them? Or what is the framework of it? Who is the audience for that? Uh, another thing you can do is uh, you can belong to synopsis.com, which is C-Y-N-O-P-S-I-S. Um, Synopsis.com has a daily email that they send out, and it's a really good way to see what's out there on a daily basis. Just, you know, again, 45 seconds a day, one minute per day can really nail this stuff for you. The thing that you don't really need to care about in Entertainment Weekly is the big articles. 
Entertainment Weekly puts stuff on the cover that they know is going to sell on newsstands, things like, you know, anything Star Trek related, Twilight related. They go for the sensation. If there's a new Pirates of the Caribbean movie, it'll be on there. You don't need to read those articles in the center of the magazine. If you're so inclined to go nuts, I sometimes read them, sometimes I don't. But that stuff is entertainment. It is not something that you're going to learn anything from. You're not going to learn anything by reading an article on Pirates of the Caribbean 4 and the issues that they had in production and so forth. But you definitely will learn something by reading the reviews or at least taking a look at the reviews of all the new movies that are coming out this week and doing that 52 weeks in, uh, in a row and then doing that years in a row so that five years from now you have a really good sense of everything that's been out there. All right, moving on. I have some really great questions this week I'm going to talk about. Spencer had asked me some really good questions via email, and I'm responding to them on the show, which I'm happy to do for you as well. And I'm going to knock this down a little bit. The question that he asked was, what about basing scripts or what are, what about you basing your own scripts on that are inspired by unmade films or plots how do you find these scripts that for one reason or another didn't get made and how should one go about adapting or using the plots of another script and the answer is you don't this is one of those things is it's a great question you the last thing you want to do if you're borrowing somebody else's idea is to look at the actual material because it's really about the log line it's about the concept and if you find some great idea from back in the day that didn't get made and or if you say walk into Blockbuster and go look through the video boxes and look at some of the older movies and say, hey, that's a great idea. Don't watch the movie because at that point it, it will be too formed in your head as to what that that person was doing. But you can definitely use that to, to grab a log line and say, huh, what would my version of that be? Of course, there is benefit to actually watching the movie, uh, but I'm going to go with maybe you shouldn't because at that point, you'll be a little bit too keyed into what they were doing. Although, again, as I've talked about in the past, you don't need the rights to something to rewrite it. The people who wrote Get Him to the Greek did not say, hey, this is my favorite year as a remake. And the only reason that anybody would make my favorite year as a remake or call it that is be if the film had a huge built-in audience, which my favorite year doesn't. It's a wonderful, hysterical film. It's great. It's a classic in its own right, meaning that it's a four-star film from back in the day, uh, the early 80s. But it is not something that if you slap that title on Get Him to the Greek, it would have made any more money. So the, re the result is a film that totally changes it up and yet borrows heavily from the thing. So I don't recommend going and hunting for a script if it didn't get made. But, um, you know, in the case of movies, you can also do it with movies. You can also rewrite a concept because the frameworks of concepts are always the same. The ideas are always the same. The execution is the same. It's just that you're, you're giving new characters with new specific problems and... That's what screenwriting is about. Moving on. This is a great question. I know some of you probably will be like, wow, this is a ridiculous question, but it's something everybody thinks at some point. Is there a possible way not to really sell screenplays? Oh, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase this. He's basically asking, is there any way to be a screenwriter and stay on board the project to the end? Having the work in the script still be one that appears on screen at the end of it all. He says that he would love the paycheck, but and he'd love for it to go to the studio, 
but he doesn't want to write something, fall in love with it, and watch it be taken away and have a thousand other writers rewrite it until it hardly resembles something that I worked on. Is there a contract that you know of that would make it null and void not to use me after I give them the script and that I have to stay on and work with them? And no, you can't do that. That's not what being a screenwriter is. That's what being a playwright is. If you feel that attached to writing plays, which is a totally different medium, it's a totally different type of writing. A lot of writers do well with both of them, but, you know, especially in the beginning of your process, you probably should focus on being an expert in one or the other. And no, there's no way for you to stay involved with a piece of material. What you can do, though, and this is something that not a lot of writers do because there's very little purpose to it, is you can buy your material back. If it sells under Writers Guild regulations, there's windows that open up after five years and then after, I believe, seven or ten years, where within a three or six-month window, and again, I'm not specific about this, but I know that it exists. At some point, you can buy back a screenplay and pay a fraction of what the spec cost was. And I don't know whether or not the other fees that you might have accrued on the project are relevant, but I believe that all the other fees that are involved are not. So it's not like a project and turnaround. Because the problem, the idea, by the way, turnaround is where a studio says, we have developed this project, we are not making it anymore, and somebody else can pay us for the material and all the money that we put into the project in order to take the project to another studio. So there's famous films like Adventures in Babysitting that that happened with and Home Alone where the script itself just sort of hit a dead end at the studio and the producer said, hey, can we take it elsewhere? And the studio said yes. They don't really like to do that anymore because there's too much egg on the face of the studio if it goes somewhere else and becomes a huge hit. For the end of time, they're always saying, oh, well, Home Alone was originally at so-and-so studio, but Fox ended up getting to make it. And the reality of that is, well, we don't know what draft of Home Alone they didn't want to make at Fox. We don't know if the version that we all know and love is the version that got made. But, no, there's no way to stay involved with the project unless they want to keep you involved. And that's up to your work. That is something that is, if you are knocking it out of the park, if you are... If you knock your rewrite out of the park, if you continue to keep everybody involved happy, then they will keep you involved. In the case that your script, that there's something that's missing, and they sense that, they will usually go to a sort of end zone person, a script doctor, the kind of person they bring on to the end of the script, at the end of the process when the movie's going into production. And all the greatest writers are hired and fired, and it's like a big, you know, sort of circle of where one gets fired off a project and their friends are brought onto it and vice versa, and that's okay. That's okay. That's the way the system works. And you're definitely not going to outwit the system at the beginning of your career. That's not what it's about. Being a screenwriter is about being somewhat prolific. And you need to move on to new projects anyway. So take your money. And if they don't want to keep paying you, then you'll move on to new things. And by the way, sometimes at studios, they will literally knock you off a project and then give you another job on somebody else's project. That absolutely happens. I, I don't want to get into the reasons for that, but, you know, because you think, well, if they liked me as a writer, why wouldn't they keep me on this particular movie? And sometimes it's, the, it's that there's nothing to do. You know, there's too many sort of variables that are involved. Sometimes it's if you set up Project A at a studio and they like your rewrite and so forth, then they're going to start sending it to talent. And that could take six months, six months that you're going to be off doing other things. And say Will Smith becomes attached to it. Well, Will Smith maybe has his own writers that he wants to bring on to it. His own friends, his own writers who have really knocked it out of the park for him. 
And at that point, why would you stop that from moving along? Because at this point, you can run around town saying, hey, I have this project Will Smith just got attached to and blah, blah, blah. And meanwhile, the studio still loves you. You've done nothing wrong. So that's just a for instance. But no, there's no way to stay involved with a project once you've sold it because they are paying you to be able to take over your work. And at some point, if they don't make your movie, you can buy it back. And you can take your name off the script if it, at the end, resembles something that you don't like. However, the problem with that is that studios really don't like when that happens. It's a little bit embarrassing to the studio because it suggests that the movie itself is not good before the movie comes out, and you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to go out there and shit on a movie before it's released. Afterwards, once the movie's made its money and the sort of tallies are in, you're free to say whatever you want. Okay, does a script need to, what does a script need to actually reach the screen as opposed to just being bought and then left, left in a dusty script library somewhere? The idea of a dusty script library is funny because now everything is digital and at least at that point there'd be a printout that would be physical that somebody would remember. In this case, it's a file that, you know, every day you probably get 20 emails that you delete. Well, it's kind of like that with some scripts, I guess. They don't get brought back. There's no answer to that because the process of, a script as it moves forward is every script is its own battle every project is its own battle and the bigger names that come onto it the more development that's going to happen so if steven spielberg says i want to direct this or if tom cruise says i want to star in this or channing tatum says i want to star in this at that point you're talking about a project that is going to probably have other writers and they're going to take other takes and there's going to be a development process that happens. For some period, it may happen with you, and then eventually it might be somebody else. So again, there's nothing that directly sends a movie into production. And I think a good example of this is the movie Snow White and the Huntsman, because I remember hearing about this process from one of the producers, and this was a project that was totally packaged together where they brought it in with the script. I believe there were some drafts of the script that were done in the development process before the script ever went to a studio where they said, okay, these are some things that we think you can improve and that happened. And then they sent it to some really big directors that they knew studios wanted to make movies with and they got one. And the director went in and gave his pitch for this is the movie I want to make. And there were tons of visual aids and he walked them through it and the script was the piece of property that had to be purchased in order for the studio to go ahead and make the movie and the script ended up selling for 3.2 million dollars and my guess is that that never could have happened unless it was a full package where the director had not just said yeah i'll direct this because again at the time the director rupert sanders was not ridley scott or steven spielberg where the name itself sort of pushes it through but in, in this case, it was he was giving his pitch. This is the movie I want to make. These are the visual aids. This is the film you're buying and going to make. And to get that deal, the studio had to buy the script and buy it for a lot of money. It raised the price of the spec script. But here's the interesting thing. If you look at the film, there's a bunch of other huge writers on there. I think it's... Uh, Hossein Amini and John Lee Hancock are both credited writers on that film. Those are huge end zone guys, which means they hired one end zone guy and then they went out and hired another end zone guy. I don't know the particular work that those guys did and I haven't read the original script, but it shows you that this is the process that happened. So even though the studio was willing to pay 3.2 million for the script and they were willing to basically put it into 
de facto production by, and, and I don't know the specifics of how it ended up or what promises Universal made in terms of making the movie, other than putting down $3.2 million on a spec script, which is an insanely high amount. It's more than Basic Instinct sold for. I mean, it's, it's almost record setting and that is a good way of saying, hey, we're going to play ball here. doesn't guarantee the movie's getting made necessarily, although they may have made some sort of guarantee. I don't know that. But what I do know is that in this case, you know, the studio was willing to play ball to put a massive piece of their yearly development fund into this one project. It said they were very serious about making the film. And at that point, why would you not want to take that money? Um, so... The answer to your question is there's no guarantees about anything and there's nothing about a particular spec script that means that it's going to get made versus not get made. And all that stuff is arbitrary. It's general. It has There's no way to put a finger on it and say, well, this is the way that you move a project through the system. It is a throw it up against the wall, see what sticks, see who attaches themselves. You know, I can think five years ago you could say, okay, there's these three actors. There's Channing Tatum, there's James Franco, and there's this person. Let's send it to the three of them. And you don't know which one of those people who's getting movies made today. And you don't know which one studios think sell the tickets. Um, I think today Channing Tatum might be looked at as more of a ticket seller than James Franco, although James Franco is starring in this new Oz the Great and Powerful movie. So that's a $250 million film. So you might say to yourself, wow, I was lucky to get James Franco instead of this other person. But you don't know that the studios actually think that it's going to make $250 million because it's the Wizard of Oz reboot or because of Sam Raimi or because of him. So again, this stuff is all arbitrary. You just don't know. And the way that you play the game as a producer is you just start attaching people who are up-and-comers and you see if you get lucky. You see if the person who you've attached ends up moving forward in a way because there's always sort of that list of names who are about to pop that studios are really excited about and in time we find out whether or not that person sells tickets which has nothing to do with acting ability it has nothing to do with although most of the people who sell tickets tend to be pretty good actors um, but there's plenty of wonderful great actors who turned out not to be people who sell tickets I think Jude Law is a great example of one of those I think Colin Farrell is an example of one of those they are superb actors with huge careers ahead of them uh, but they didn't pop in the way that studios thought they would you know 10 years ago and studios put them into a lot of huge movies and they didn't for whatever reason and I have my own ideas for each one of those why they proved themselves to be master thespians a plus actors people who could carry a movie nobody has ever called one of those two guys a bad actor or anything other than somebody deserving I would it surprise you if both of these guys have Oscars within the next five years no of course not they're both completely respected they didn't sell tickets though at that particular time and the funny thing is that doesn't mean that in the future they can't and the best example is Johnny Depp because Johnny Depp is one of the top three stars in the world now and he's had been in movies since the late 1980s and he was even put in several movies I'm going to talk about them a little bit later or one of them a little bit later in the podcast Johnny Depp was the star of multiple movies including Edward Scissorhands which everybody loves nobody doesn't like Edward Scissorhands and he was looked at as a completely competent actor, a wonderful actor, but he didn't necessarily sell tickets. And I'm not even sure that until Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, movies like Sleepy Hollow, I don't know that that movie made as much or as little as it did because of him. It was basically a Tim Burton movie being sold. Um, so, you know, who's selling and who's not is something that is something you need to be looking at as a writer. 
But that's different than casting because there were a lot of movies that they would cast Johnny Depp in, but they wouldn't necessarily buy the movie or put it into production because he was attached until now where he can own a huge piece of the movie and do whatever the heck he wants to do and get those movies made. Moving on, this week a student of mine, Jeremiah, had some really interesting ideas about a couple of different films that he brought to my attention. And one of those is Young Adult, where he brings up the point that both of his screenwriting teachers, one of whom was my screenwriting teacher at USC, Ed DiLorenzo, have really knocked voiceovers, especially for newer writers. And that's in my book, uh, The Starter Screenplay, where I talk about that you don't want to be using voiceover. And of course, the uh, the minute that I talked about that on a podcast, I then started watching that night House of Cards, which is the new Netflix show. And that show uses immense voiceover. It's constant with Kevin Spacey's character. And here's what I realized about voiceover. The more devious your hero is, or the crazier your hero is, the more necessary voiceover becomes. New writers tend to use it as a crutch. They tend to use voiceover to tell us things that they should be showing, or maybe that we don't really need to know at all. But if your voiceover counterpoints the action or counterpoints or is opposite to the words that come out of the hero's mouth, if they're saying one thing and thinking something completely different, usually in the case of a lie, then it's okay to use it. But remember, it's not something you wanna just jump into. It's something that has to be within your entire script. So when a, hero, when a movie starts off by saying, hey, I was born in this town and th these are my parents and this is what's going on and this is where I work and all that stuff, um, that is bullshit voiceover. That is incompetent screenwriting. Most writers know that. Most working writers know that it's something to avoid, that it's something that you see if it's a book adaptation or if you need to shoehorn in more material, um, again, as in the case of a book adaptation, that you really don't have time to show, but you should not be doing that or writing the type of screenplay where you need to be shoehorning in material. Um, the Some examples though that it works, House of Cards I think it works. Remember that that was part of the framework though of House of Cards. House of Cards is a remake of a BBC show and part of it was that this incredibly devious man would say something, do something, and then turn to the camera and share with the audience. Uh, a Shock to the System with Michael Caine did that, where he's killing off people as he climbs a corporate ladder. And The Informant with Matt Damon, the Steven Soderbergh movie, is a movie that's almost completely in voiceover. He talks through the entire thing in his head. And that's because the man is, to some extent, crazy. He sees the world in a way that is... You'd, you'd probably have to watch it to figure out exactly what I mean, but... It's interesting to be inside his head, and he is devious in his own genteel way, which is kind of the fun part of the informant, or what brings the character value. All right, moving on. Jeremiah also read uh, Fuck Buddies, which is the script by Liz Merriweather that exploded her onto the scene. She created the show New Girl, and the script Fuck Buddies became the much trailer-friendlier title, No Strings Attached with Natalie Portman, and... Ashton Kutcher. And it's interesting, he points out a couple of things that I'll talk about real quickly. In the first sex scene of the script, Fuck Buddies, she keeps her shoes on during sex. And it's a metaphor for her non-commitment. Wearing shoes in bed represents her readiness to leave and walk out the door at any moment, a neurotic expression of independence. Those are Jeremiah's words. And he's right about that, that this is a character who stayed pretty stable in terms of her characterization, where 
she is a mess on a personal level. She's a resident doctor, meaning that she has very little waking hours available to herself, and she certainly has none of those to put into a relationship. And she even says, hey, if we were in a relationship, I would very quickly become a scary, evil version of myself. And you don't want that, and I don't have time for that, so let's just keep having sex. Um, in the script, though, they set that up where in the first sex scene she says, I don't take my shoes off during sex. And at the end of the script, when they have expressed love to one another and have decided to enter into a real relationship, she takes off her shoes before getting into bed or when they get into bed. And that's a beautiful moment. That is something classic that didn't make it into the movie. And that's okay because I think it probably would have looked ridiculous. And maybe at some point somebody said, you know, if this works on the page. I, you know, maybe Ivan Reitman said, hey, I just don't want to shoot this. I think it's going to be silly. I think people are going to be looking at her shoes the whole time. I, I just don't want to be dealing with this. Um, and that's okay. But as screenwriting, I want to point it out because it's a great thing. Not only is it, a, and it's a behavioral action also. And screenwriting is so much about capturing a hero's behavior and how it changes as the result of their journey. And the cool thing about that is we often think of behavior as something huge about every situation. And yes, that's true to some extent, but really it's about like these single moments because in a screenplay, that's all you have time for. It's that single moment where she says, I'm keeping my shoes on. And then at the end of the movie, she takes her shoes off. It's that simple. You need to boil it down like that because sometimes we, or writers, and I'm, I'm not a writer, um, but sometimes writers get a little too wrapped up in the overall behavioral stuff, and they think of the character in sort of a sense kind of way. Well, she's kind of like this, or whatever. And no, this is a concrete action. She said, somebody points it out. They say, hey, your shoes are on. She says, I don't take my shoes off for sex. It's a metaphor for her being ready to leave. And at the end of the script, she takes them off. Do you have moments like that in your script? Because that's a perfect, perfectly written moment. Didn't make the movie, that's okay. The other thing that he pointed out from the movie, the script to the movie, is that in the script, the characters hook up with other people in between. And in the movie, they keep setting up this possibility of the characters having sex with other people, and they don't. And that is a perfect example of Hollywood needing to be Hollywood. That Hollywood often tries to make the movies as unoffensive as possible, and it would be really hard for general audiences to wrap their heads around watching these characters sleeping with other people. It just really destroys the sympathy that we have for the characters, or potentially does, or especially for older audiences does. And remember that it's older people who are making these decisions. You know, Ivan Reitman is He's in his 60s, I guess. Um, you have a studio that's making it where the executives are all in their 40s, 50s. So even though the writer is young, you know, she wrote it in one way, but it was necessary to draw back. And that's something that always exists in Hollywood. And when people say, oh, Hollywood is, you know, a lot of conservatives love writing articles. And I love to read them because they make me a little nutty when I see them about how Hollywood is so liberal. And the people who work in Hollywood are incredibly liberal in terms of, yes, that most of them probably voted for Obama. But when it comes to the content of the material that is put out there, it is the status quo that is constantly being protected. And this is a perfect example where you have a movie about people who are engaged in this. Should we be having, you know, can we have a relationship or can we have a relationship purely based on sex without being based on emotion? 
and they're playing with that thesis and of course the answer is no and of course that's not the reality of real life it's the, because just because people are sexually compatible does not necessarily mean that they would make good life partners in perpetuity because that's essentially what the, they're saying about this movie they're on their way to getting married at the end of the film just by virtue of the fact that they're entering into this relationship and it's happily ever after and yet that's the values that hollywood is espousing here that even in the case of the idea of these partners being you know that they can't avoid falling in love that and that is an incredibly conservative thing even on the show will and grace i believe it was five seasons before they showed will kissing another dude so you know there's always hollywood is when was the last time you saw a character having an abortion in a film or a tv show or even talking about it you know that's the most popular medical procedure that exists in america today over 1.5 million women each year have abortions and you never see that occurring in uh, until maybe an episode of girls uh where they didn't even go through with that although i think the show girls is ballsy enough and in your face enough to do something like that they had an episode that surrounded revolved around an abortion clinic in any case so um i want to talk real quickly about two movies i saw this week wow this is going to be a full-length podcast today okay Okay, I saw the movie Jennifer's Body. I saw two-thirds of it. I did not get to finish it, and I wasn't interested in finishing it. But I want to talk about it real quickly. The logline that I got off Rotten Tomatoes, an impish high school student played by Amanda Seyfried who has to protect her own town against her best friend, Jennifer, played by Megan Fox, who after being bedeviled by an evil rock band, develops a taste for human flesh. So the idea is that these girls are best friends. You have the hot cheerleader played by Jennifer, uh, I'm sorry, Jennifer played by Megan Fox. And you have uh, the Amanda character who is the sort of bookwormish girl who you wouldn't assume would be friends with this hot cheerleader, but they've been friends forever. And the hot girl basically gets she gets into a van with a rock band where she thinks the guys are hot or thinks the lead singer's hot and we think you know they drive her off and we think that something horrible is going to happen to her and it turns out that they perform some satanic ceremony on her and she becomes basically a vampire except she she kills people and eats their entrails and eventually she gets hungry again and needs to do it later but there's really long periods of time where she's satisfied and satiated in this sort of so she goes back and forth between being the the cheerleader who has full faculty of herself and being this ravenous carnivore for human flesh there's a couple of interesting things about this movie and i whether or not this movie is for you is largely a taste thing the reviews on rotten tomatoes had it at 42 percent some people liked it some didn't Again, I think Diablo Cody is a wonderful writer in a lot of ways. So, you know, let's talk about a couple of the things that are good. First of all, this is a twist on convention because it's women stalking guys. Guys are the victims in this movie, and it's a woman who is doing the stalking. That is a complete reversal on how horror movies generally work. Usually it's about a guy, and the hero is a 17-year-old girl who's being chased, and where her life is at risk, and her friends are dying. So... That is a change that we have a woman as the villain stalking men. Second thing that I found interesting was it was the first movie that I can recall where somebody enjoy where a woman enjoys losing her virginity. In cinema, it is this act is always depicted where the guys can enjoy it or they last a very short period of time. And for the woman, it is always being shown as painful and something that needs to be suffered through. 
and in order to sort of get through it. And think about the movies you've seen. That's how they always show it. And that's an example of Hollywood being really conservative. Because this is the first time, you know, there's a smile on her face when they're doing it. And the camera is on her face. And I thought, wow, what a great moment. What a great way to twist a convention that we're not even aware of because it's so common. And in this case, they show her enjoying this experience up until a point. And at some point, something else comes in that sort of distracts her. But... For the initial setup of the scene, she's enjoying losing her virginity. And that's something that's really an interesting female empowerment thing that these women who made the film, it's a female director, female writer, uh, female stars, and they are sort of taking that power back. I really like that. Now, the reviews for this movie would say things like, not scary enough and not funny enough. That's sort of where the general reviews seem to be. Some people liked it, some didn't, but there was a general sense that the movie didn't work. And I would argue that that's correct, that on a fundamental genre level, the movie doesn't work. And here's why. Horror is about a character's life being on the line. It is about them being attacked in a contained space. It is about survival. And the thing about Jennifer's body is that it doesn't exist here because the hero, the Amanda character, is the one person who is not at risk of being eaten by Megan Fox. She's, she's not at risk. They're best friends. And even when Megan Fox needs to feed, she doesn't look to kill her best friend. And her best friend, you know, it's interesting that the logline is more effective than the actual film because the logline says an impish high school student has to protect her town against her best friend, Jennifer, who, after being bedeviled by a rock band, develops a taste for human flesh. Look at that term, protect her town, has to protect her town. That's the hero's mission, but the hero does very little of that. And the, the movie also makes an odd decision, which is that there is very little... There's no parents. It's almost like a Charlie Brown kind of thing where we don't meet Jennifer's parents. We meet Amanda's mom, played by um, Amy Sedaris, who's great in the movie, but she's kind of a drug addict and not all there. And the, the thing about it is that, like, Amanda's character never runs around trying to get help. She has a sense that her friend may be killing people, and yet she does virtually nothing about it until the third act, until we get to that third act. So... Again, what we have is a script where the hero is the one person who's not at risk. Well, where's the horror of that? Where's the horror as we watch Jennifer killing people? Because that's not what horror is about. Horror is about it hitting home for the hero. And in this case, the people who are being killed up until the third act, and I know what happens, I read about what I missed in the film, um, it's really not intensely personal for our hero, for the girl whose perspective we're telling this story from. Now, the other thing is, well, some, some reviewers were saying, well, it's a horror and it's a comedy piece. Well, it's not a horror movie. I just talked about that. It's not really a comedy either because almost all great scripts and great movies have comedy in them. I call it the Schindler's List test, which is that your movie script should be as funny as Schindler's List. Schindler's List has some laugh lines and it has some really clever moments. It has some great dialogue that sort of gets a chuckle out of the audience. All great movies do. But, that, but that's not fundamentally what the movie is. I wouldn't call Lincoln, Lincoln's one of the funniest movies I saw this year. It has some of the, had probably the most laughs uh, that I laughed in a theater. But that doesn't make it a comedy. It just means that there's some really clever screenwriting inside of the overall 
uh, format that it is. And I don't want to get too much into Lincoln right now uh, because I, I would have some trouble classifying that. And that's okay because Steven Spielberg can do whatever he wants and it worked. But in this case, it's not a comedy because comedy is not about the gag. It's not about the funny line. It's about the situation that the character's in and the pressure cooker situation the character is in and what ends up happening and the types of expression of the animal humor, the child humor, or the machine humor of the situations that the character is in in these pressure cooker situations. Jennifer's body does not offer that to the Amanda Seyfried character. So the result is a movie that gets to me. To me, it got boring because there was no engine to it. There was, and here's the best, here's how I would defend that because people will say, well, it's not scary enough. What is, well, what does that mean? I'm suggesting it's not really a horror film at its core from a screenwriting perspective, although there's lots of blood. But here's what I can offer to you. And this is in my book. I talk about the fact that your script needs a condensed timeline. And in Jennifer's body, for no reason at all, halfway through the movie, a month passes. A month goes by. That's not a pressure cooker. That's not a hero in relentless pursuit of a goal. There's no relentlessness to protecting her town when a month goes by and nothing happens. And maybe they were doing that to uh, sort of uh, to show that um, the Jennifer, you know, to suggest to Amanda's character that maybe Jennifer didn't do this or to sort of take the pressure off. But movies aren't about that. They're about uh, constantly applying more and more and more pressure. And in this case, you know, it really did not help the movie that a month would go by in the middle of it. Movies are, should, if you're writing a spec script, it should take place in a day, a week, maybe a month, and that's it. Um, you don't want a movie that takes place over time. It's not a movie anymore. And I, I know that that might, you, you'll want to throw some other examples at me and I'll welcome them, but that's what screenwriting is about, especially at the spec level. And it's about bringing pressure, whatever it is, whether you're talking about The Hangover or you're talking about Flight or you're talking about, which is the other movie I saw this week. And by the way, that movie was much funnier than Jennifer's Body, meaning I laughed out loud more often during Flight than I did during Jennifer's Body. Um, both are written by great screenwriters, but neither of them are comedies. Flight is not a comedy. It is a intense character drama. So, but it has a lot of funny moments in it because that's what great writing does. So again, Schindler's List test. Your movie should be as funny as Schindler's List. And maybe one day I'll watch Schindler's List again. It's such a harrowing film to watch. If you haven't seen it, it's a great film. It definitely stands up as a movie. I know because I've seen it once or twice in between the time that I saw it in theaters and now. Maybe one day, one day I'll go through it and watch it to see how many laughs there are in the film. Um, but the laughs are not, you know, the laughs are dialogue related. And that's something that you should always have. Argo was a very funny movie also. Um, so let me move on to the other film that I saw this week, which is Don Juan DeMarco. And again, I'm talking about older movies and maybe movies that you haven't seen, and that's okay. I'll try to give you enough information so that you can get a sense of what lessons there are to be learned. And I, the reason that I point out these movies is not because they're good, bad, or indifferent. It's because... I think you can learn from pretty much anything you throw in the DVD player that a major studio put out that has some general level of competence. And again, that's why I can talk about Jennifer's Body because you have some really talented people involved with it. There were just some things about it that were, but by no means was it an incompetent film, which a lot of horror that's put out is incompetent. You know, I was looking through Netflix. Netflix right now has 625 horror movies available uh, on streaming. And I would say that maybe 40 or 50 of them are what I would consider to be competent horror movies with all of the pieces that you need produced in some way with some production value 
Um, and the almost every single one of those sort of ten thousand to hundred thousand dollar titles to me has very little merit in terms of what we would look at in a screenplay. But in any case, Don Juan DeMarco. For those of you who don't know. Marlon Brando plays a psychiatrist whose new patient thinks that he's the legendary lover Don Juan DeMarco. And this is one of those movies where it's about the patient psychiatrist case, where the psychiatrist's life changes and his perspective changes as a result of taking on a unique new patient. And in this case, that patient is played by a young Johnny Depp. This was a Marlon Brando-Johnny Depp teaming up in a film that's written and directed by Jeremy Levin, who you might not be familiar with. He is one of the great screenwriters of all time. He wrote my one of my favorite screenplays ever, The Time Traveler's Wife, which is not the version that got made because it was too expensive. I forget. I know in one version of this podcast, I talked a lot about The Time Traveler's Wife and the two different versions of that screenplay. Um, or because they were completely different takes on the material. The Jeremy Levin version was the, I believe, and I'm speaking off the top of my head here, I believe it was a Steven Spielberg-Brad Pitt collaboration, and the Jeremy Levin version would have cost $200 million to do. Maybe by 2015, 17, they could do it for a lot cheaper. But the, the script itself was very different than the version of the book that, or the take that they made into a movie that could be made at a price that could be made around $40 million, which is the version that they made. But um, in this case, Don Juan DeMarco is about this psychiatrist. And in the opening scene, we watch Marlon Brando saving Johnny Depp from a suicide attempt. He believes that he's this legendary lover, Don Juan DeMarco, and he's standing up on top of a building roof or on top of a billboard or something. And they basically put Marlon Brando on a chairlift thing and send him up to talk this guy down. And it turns out that he's not suicidal, but he's lost his love. And the interesting thing is that he sticks to this story, that he's Don Juan DeMarco. And he has this whole sort of narrative to his life that he shares in these psychiatric sessions. And this whole perspective on reality and on being a great lover and on being living life to the fullest and all these things that is missing from Marlon Brando's life. And again, Marlon Brando's character is retiring in 10 days. So we have that intense ticking clock there. He's got to treat this guy in 10 days or else this guy is just going to be medicated and put into the system. And Marlon Brando doesn't think that he needs that. He needs a different type of therapy. Now, here's the thing. Again, these movies are always about the psychiatrist as the hero. They're the person whose perspective we're seeing it from. They are our reality. And they come into contact with this new person who teaches them how to live life. And that is a really cool thing that we see in cinema that doesn't exist in reality. Because in reality, crazy people are fucking crazy. Have you ever talked to a delusional or schizophrenic person? I've come across a few for whatever reason. Mental illness, drugs, combination of the both. They are not themselves. They have no consistent reality. And in movies, that works differently. And that, I think, speaks to the rule that I talk about in my book, which is bend reality to make it a movie. This really interesting patient-psychiatrist dynamic, which exists in lots and lots and lots of films, um, is something that is, you know, that's what The Prince of Tides is. That's what, uh, what was the movie with James Bridges, uh, I'm sorry, Jeff Bridges and Kevin Spacey? I'm, wow, I'm blanking on the movie right now, and it'll come to me by the end of the podcast. Um, the thing about this, this film is that we watch Marlon Brando saving Johnny Depp from a suicide attempt at the beginning of the movie and taking him on as a patient with 10 days to go until he retires. 
But the one interesting thing that I think we could learn from, because I really like the film, it's definitely worth seeing if you're romantic, if you like romantic movies, it's a great film. And you get to see Marlon Brando in one of his last interesting performances with, uh, you know, with him dedicated to the film. And I, I think that's something worth watching. Uh, but the interesting thing is that it doesn't set up Marlon Brando's life. It doesn't use those first couple of pages to establish his life and the routine of it and what's going on in his marriage and how the marriage has kind of died and how he in tries to inject new life into it as a result of what he's learning from this patient. We see those scenes, but we don't quite establish the earlier stuff. And that's what you know Blake Snyder would suggest pages 1 to 12 are about, because I would suggest that's what I would do. If this movie was being remade today, I would take those first 12 pages and set up Marlon Brando's psychiatrist character with 10 days to retire. Set that up. Set up what his work life is like. Set up what he's like with a different patient, even or multiple patients. How does he get through the day? Is he bored? Is he not? Is he, what is his marriage like at home? Because by the time that we see that relationship with Faye Dunaway, his wife, which always has, you know, Marlon Moreno and Faye Dunaway are so dynamic that there's always seems to be sparks. It never seems to be boring. Um, although there's a great scene that opens up where he's come back from his first session with Don Juan DeMarco and she's going on and on about what she did and she took her car into the mechanic and the mechanic says I need two more weeks and this and that and I have no idea what's wrong with your car and he's not paying attention to her. That's all we have there and I would love to have seen more. I would love to see this world sort of this, his world established, his life established, his worldview, his boredom, his routine, all that stuff established before he saves this guy from a suicide attempt and takes him on as a patient and that would be your page 12 moment. So again, that I think is, is something, again, bend reality to make it a movie. M movies work differently, and it's about you recognizing that and you saying, okay, crazy people in movies work in this way where they teach the psychiatrist a very important lesson. And in the case of, uh, you know, Don Juan DeMarco, um, crazy people don't exist like this in real life, and psychiatrists don't hug their patients. And I think that that is something that, uh, you know, we can keep in mind. So in any case, that is all that I have for you this week. I'll be back next week. I'm thinking of doing a show on talking about query letters and breaking into the system. I, I think that's an interesting subject. I will probably be covering that in the next couple of weeks. By the way, please leave a review on iTunes. If you're listening to the show each week, Go to iTunes, leave a review. By the way, this is, and, and go to Amazon and leave a book review. If you've read the starter screenplay, if you're listening to the podcast, go to Amazon, leave a book review. This is not a book report. This is two, three sentences. Hey, I like the book. Or I had an issue with the book. Whatever it is, uh, you're free to talk about it in two or three sentences. Slap a, you know, a star rating on there, and bam, you're good to go. And same thing with iTunes. Quick review. You don't have to think about it. Just go. Just do it. And that way you can support the podcast. Tell your friends about it. Again, I'm doing these master classes at the Director's Playhouse. If you're in LA, email me. I'll let you know when these things are happening. And you can go to directorsplayhouse.com to sign up for the two master classes I have on February 23rd. One of them is horror. The other one is comedy. And I think you'll really appreciate those. And I'd love to meet you if you're listening to the podcast. So again, I'm Adam Levenberg. I'll have a new show for you next week. Take it easy.